First Thessalonians chapter 2. Also, also remember our brother uh, Charlie as well. He's uh, diagnosed with pneumonia, so he's going to be laid aside for a number of days at least anyway, so pray for him and his recovery. Charlie Kelsch, that is. Just hold him before the Lord. So we return to this letter this morning and... gotten as far as the end of verse 9, so we'll be considering verses 10, 11, and 12 this morning as we finish up really what is a series within a series, as it were, he's opening 12 verses. The Apostle Paul gives what we have uh, entitled characteristics of Christian leadership, and we've sought to uh, summarize and, and pull in some of the verses where there's a certain theme of that leadership that he exhibited uh, through his life and particularly in his ministry in Thessalonica. And we come to the fifth one and the final one that brings this section to a close, and that is godliness. Godliness really is what summarizes verses 10, 11, and 12. So we'll just read those verses for the sake of time. This time is running on, but let us read... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Ear witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Amen. We'll end a reading there, trusting that this infallible portion of the Word of God will be written on our hearts for the benefit of our lives and the instruction of us all here. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all momentarily ask for the Lord's help for this specific point of our worship, hearing the Word of God. Lord, we do ask that Thou wilt give the aid that we need. We have been encouraged this morning our worship has, has done our souls good. We're thankful for a God that leads. Lord, lead us. Let us never wander from the path. We pray that Thou wilt give us all a willingness to be led by Thee. I would place my hand in thine, never murmur nor repine. Lord, give us such surrender of spirit, and we pray that thou wilt give us the desire to have a closer walk with God. Open up thy word now, make it profitable, that each one that hears will benefit, that those that are thy people may hear what they need to hear, their souls at this point and this time, and that Thou wilt help the preacher fill us with Thy Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding and discernment and 
Give us the power of the Holy Ghost. Fall on us, Spirit of God. Save those that may be unsaved in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This week marks the last few days before graduation for many at this time of the year. A time when a person is recognized for their academic progress. They have met the set requirements, they have completed their studies, and they are going to graduate. Some are here today, many others scattered around the nation are anticipating graduation. It's a stage of maturity, and it would be a sad reality if those that are graduating leave their place of instruction the same way they came in, having learned nothing, having made no real progress, that they endeavored upon a course of study and nothing really develops within their character or their thinking. The desire is that they will increase in knowledge, that they would develop in their reasoning, and that they would make advancements in the wise application of what they know, whatever the course of study might be. Learning is an important skill. We are called to learn. In fact, we are told, commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And sometimes we forget that part. God calls us to worship Him with our minds, that we give that faculty over to Him. And we're gifted in different ways in our minds, and some of us, you will see the variation within the characteristics of each one of us. And our minds are therefore applied in different ways, and our our hands and our hearts and our, our whole being is applied in different ways because of how, really, in many ways, our minds work and how they can... Uh, function in various aspects and, and uh, be particularly gifted or perhaps weak in other areas, and we learn very quickly where uh, we should exercise ourselves. But learning is an important part even where we're gifted. It's always beneficial, of course, to sit at the feet of the master. And if there's a master of a particular subject, a particular aspect that we want to learn and develop in, it's far better just to be right there in their presence and learn all we can from them in person. The next best thing is to read what they write. And that's what we do when we open the Word of God. We read what men, holy men of old, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we read as these holy men, as we are called to holiness, as we are called to live for the glory of God, and they, as holy men, set that example in their writings as well as all that is recorded concerning them. The best thing we can do, other than being right there in the day in which they lived, and learn from them directly, is to read what they have given to us. And that's what we do, as I've said, when we open the Word of God. And when we've come to this particular portion, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the opening 12 verses, the Apostle Paul, in the providence of God, and by the leading of the Spirit, has been concentrating upon what we have termed leadership qualities, certain leadership characteristics, aspects of how he lived as he defended his character and his conduct. In terms of his preaching ministry, we noted three things. That he had boldness, truthfulness, and integrity. You'll find those in the opening six verses. And in terms of his pastoral ministry, we have noted his gentleness, verses 7 through 9. And we come now to the last characteristic, that of godliness, in verses 10 through 12. And as we consider this this morning, I trust the Lord will use it to help us. And 
that we will sit at the feet of the Master in terms of what He has given to us in His providence, in His mercy, and we will learn that we will sit here for a class, as it were. That's what we do when we gather into the house of God. When we worship, part of our worship and worshiping the Lord our God with all of our mind is giving the application of our minds to the hearing of the Word that we might benefit. I was just reading with the family yesterday again about the parable of the sower. And I was saying to the girls, I was reminding them that, that we have a certain ground that every one of us, as we hear the Word of God, there, there is a ground being reflected by us. And I said to them, we should pray, therefore. We have to pray that we would be good ground hearers of the Word. Good ground hearers, that's a good prayer. That's an important prayer. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand before God, that's a prayer. Lord, make me a good ground hearer. But the seed of the Word that's planted will not fall short of what it's intended to do, and that is to germinate and bring life, that I might be fruitful as a child of God, being regenerated in my own soul and continuing to live for His glory. But being good ground hearers, important, as we learn and develop in our understanding. So as we consider this aspect of godliness, note with me first of all, the man teaching it, the man teaching it. Verse 10, Ye are witnesses, Paul writes, and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Paul has constantly been using words like remember and ye know. He's been refreshing their memory, calling them to just, just refresh your memory on the way that we live before you. In fact, even going back to chapter 1, he's been using that verbiage in terms of recollecting what went on when the Apostle Paul was there. And he has already appealed to them in terms of what witness he can appeal to, in terms of, of God himself. Verse 5, he says, God is witness when he says, Neither at any time use be flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. So even there in verse 5, you said, Look, you know, and God is witness. And he says the same thing in verse 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now, what does, he under, what, or what does he mean by these terms? How do we understand the terms that he uses here as he piles these terms upon one another, holily, justly, unblameably? Well, the word in the Greek for holily is, is not the usual word for holy, but it's very closely related and is basically the same idea. And when we think of the word holy, often what comes to our mind is, is a certain form of character and way of living. But it's important that we remember that holiness is, is a sense of separation from what is common or unclean. When you go through the Old Testament, you will see that very clearly distinguished. That holiness is, is a coming apart, being set apart. There were, there were elements within the temple worship, ornaments, furniture that was set apart to be holy. And in that way, they had no morality. There was no sense of ethics within the furniture or in, within the, the, the thing that was, is referred to being set apart and it's being holy unto the Lord. But at the same time, the understanding is it's not common. It's not unclean. It's been set apart to be used in the service of God. And the same term is used in relation to the people of God. They also are to be holy. And what we mean by that is not simply a set of ethics and a way of living but the actual setting apart of the person. That we are called to be set apart as separated people. Israel were separated from all the other nations. 
And every child of God has this same calling. We mentioned it in prayer. First Peter chapter 1, he quotes from Leviticus saying, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As God is set apart, as He is not common, as He is not unclean, as He is the complete opposite of that, being set apart and sanctified in His own being and eternal existence, so His people are set apart as well. And the Apostle Paul says, this is the first description given here, how holy we were set apart men in your midst. This is an important point that gets lost. Well, we're not unique in our generation, but it is being lost in our day. The sense of separation from the unclean. We're called to be a separated people. There are things, there are practices, sometimes there are even people that Christians are to separate from. They're not to be a part of them. And Paul says that that party that went there to evangelize in Thessalonica, he calls them to remember, ye are witnesses, and God also how holily. We were set apart. We weren't, we weren't like everyone else. We were different. Beloved, we are called to be different. We are. It's going to be emphasized more in verse 12 where he gets really to the point and drives it home what he was teaching them, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you onto His kingdom and glory. You've been called. Others have not. By definition, it makes you different. You're separate. You're separate. And that needs to be seen. Paul was able to say, ear witnesses. You could see it. It was plain. It grieves me that there are certain things that in the past were understood to be not what the Christian would involve themselves in that are now becoming the norm. It grieves me. It grieves me not because of some legalistic aspect of piety, but because deep down in your heart, as someone called to care for the souls of men, you just know within your heart of hearts this is not helping in the main objective of their existence. What's the main objective? Likeness to Christ. It's not helping. We have seminary lectures, teachers and reformed circles that are listening to Led Zeppelin and all sorts of rock music and all the garbage and trying to sanctify the Beatles and all things in the world. That's just one area. I'm not even going to get into a whole host of areas you could get into. The Christian is different, set apart, and it should be seen, ye are witnesses. You could see it. The normal practices and conduct of the day, you did not see in our lives. We set ourselves apart. Young people, do not, do not learn your practices merely from other people Don't say to yourselves, well, he does it, I can do it. She does it, I can do it. Bring everything into this light. If the Lord Jesus Christ was right here with me now, would I be comfortable giving myself to this? 
Would I be likely if he was in my home right now to not be doing this or not listening to this or watching this or whatever? The Lord calls us to be separate. He calls us to be holy. But not just holy, he uses the term justly. That is to say righteously. That's the word. It can be translated that way, the sense of righteousness. And it refers to obedience. Paul's life wasn't merely separated from things. It was aligned to something. It was aligned to the Word of God. And when he says here that they walked holily, that means they were separate. And he says justly, that says we we aligned our lives with the Word of God. We took the law of God and made it the, the pattern of our living. What we wondered in terms of living, <clears throat> if we would think to ourselves, what is the will of God, we would open up the Scriptures. Now, of course, this, this is seen evidently even after he left Thessalonica and he went to Berea and he taught the Word of God and the Bereans were more noble. Why? Because he opened up the Scriptures and, and to see, to compare whether what Paul's saying aligns with the Word of God. Now, that can be ta- done in terms of the Gospel. It can be done in terms of of what the way of salvation is and what God has instructed in terms of His path of saving men. It can be done there. But it also can be done in terms of what God expects of His people. Someone says, I can do this or I can do that or I can't do this or I can't do the other. And what you do is you open up the Word of God. This morning in our adult Sunday school we were considering the aspect of alcohol and, and dealing with that. Not to rehash it, but I was presenting the case from Scripture in terms of the position of this church and the wisdom of it. And going to the Word of God, not merely turning to the ideas of men and history and so on and so forth, just opening up the Word. Paul says in terms of his life, you're witnesses, and God also, how holy and justly. There was an obedience in our lives. He pulls these two ideas of separation and obedience. He pulls them together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read verses 33 and 34, where he says, in terms of separation, he says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now there's an exhortation in terms of separation. If you won't separate from evil communications, it will corrupt you. It will corrupt you. You, I know you think that it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, it's that which comes out. That's true. That's true. In terms of what you're judged by. But that does not mean to say that what goes in doesn't influence in some way what will come out. There is a separation that is right for the people of God. Be not deceived about this, Paul says. In other words, he's, he's, he's saying <laughs> that there's a tendency to be deceived on this point. To think that you can walk a path and not be influenced by those around you. He says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Birds of a feather flock together. Those that you hang around, and the way they speak, and the way they act, and what they do, and everything else, the way they think, you will become. You will. So there's a sense of separation drawn out there. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You need to remove yourself from that. And then he says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Awake to righteousness and sin not. And there's the obedience. That's what he says here, justly. Awake to righteousness. 
Sometimes believers, professing believers, need to awake to righteousness. It's like they're sleeping. They're kind of drifting along thinking it doesn't really matter how I'm living. It doesn't matter. I can just rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His impure righteousness to me doesn't call me to, to live in a certain way. It doesn't matter how I live. And the temptation then to this, what you hear in terms of hyper-grace, as it's being defined by some these days, hyper-grace, it leads to all sorts of folly. Paul says, awake to righteousness and sin not. It's not awaking to the righteousness of Christ in terms of His impudent righteousness. It's awaking to the call to righteousness and put in terms of the negative sin not. Stop sinning. Give up sin. Obey. And Paul says, this is how we lived. Here, witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly. Now, in your distinguishing those two, the two aspects of their living, one has an emphasis on the upward, that is the God word, holy, being separate unto God, and then the other has the emphasis on the outward or the man word, and that is just behavior. The way we live according to God's word. There's an overlap, but the emphasis and distinction is still there. And you combine both of them, and you're left with the third. Holily and justly and unblameably. In other words, no blame could be placed upon them. That's not to say that people were not trying to put blame upon him because this is the context of what he's saying. He's defending his character and conduct. And people are saying things about him. And that's why he defines carefully the way in which he is unblameable. Unblameably, we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Those that believe, those that have the root of the matter there that know the Lord you know how we lived among you. Our enemies may say something else. They may cause covetous. They may say we're using flattering words. And they may say we're trying to please men. And they may, they may say all of these things. And we sought glory of men. They may say that. But you know, your witness, God also, how holy and justly and unblameably. There can be no blame in these areas upon our lives. We have lived in the right manner before you. He appeals, therefore, to the church to remember the truth of the matter. Later, the Apostle Paul would reflect that desire for them to be as he was, as his party was. They were holy, just, and unblameable, and he reflects that desire for them. Chapter 3, verse 13. What does he say there? Chapter 3, 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all saints. And then also chapter 5, verse 23 he says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which those desires of the Apostle Paul are really emanating out of something that he lived himself. And he wants them to enjoy the same and longs for that and prays to that end for them. The men that taught, and this is the point, the men that taught that came into Thessalonica with the gospel and instructed the people of God, those that were converted, they were holy men. That's what verse 10 makes plain. They were holy men. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe they were holy. And this, this is a characteristic of leadership. As we said in adult Sunday school this morning, we made that point that those that are called to that position of leadership are, are there in the society, in the community, to, to present the trajectory for others who are under them. Their lives are meant to be such that those that are under their care should be drawn upwards toward them. 
And you see this manifest in Israel and Judah very clearly that whenever that king did right that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, it drew the nation out in the right way. When he went against the things of God, generally the nation went the same path. Like priests, like people. So there is an example that leaders have, the example of godliness. But it's for all believers. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Flip over a couple of pages in your Bible. We'll not read all the verses, but in Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses different categories within the church. There are aged men, verse 2, aged women, verse 3, young women, verse 4, young men, verse 6, and then an exhortation to the leader himself in verse 7. To Titus, Paul says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. There's the point we're saying. You're leading here, Titus. Make yourself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now, he's, he's exhorting Tim, to Titus to be the same as he says they were when they were in Thessalonica. Now, you go on, he addresses servants, verse 9. And he's, we'll read from verse 11 to the end. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, he is, he's given categories of different men, different types of people, Aged men, aged women, young men, young women, so on. All people, even, even servants, the lowest, those that are they're basically owned by others. The grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all, has appeared to all men. And what does it teach us? Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Verse 12 is giving essentially what verse 10 of the passage we're looking at this morning says. It's a certain way that Paul and those that were with him lived. And the, Where did they get this from? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. The gospel instructs us in what God has provided for sinners. That's true. The gospel shows us that there is a way, a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a representative, an advocate, one who has come whose name is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It instructs us that there we are not in a hopeless state of affairs if we will only look to Jesus Christ and live. But it also brings, it also instructs us that we should deny ungodliness, worldly lusts, and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us, note this, from all iniquity, and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The gospel works. It works in our lives, not just judicially, but practically. The gospel gives power. It changes men. It makes them new creatures in Christ so that the old things pass away and all things are become new. 
This is what we should expect when we bring the gospel to men. Not merely some vain profession of faith that doesn't get to the root of the matter, which is God's end goal to make us holy, to make us like Himself, which begins now. At the moment of regeneration, we glory in those testimonies. And those of you who are here this morning who have, who have come out of darkness and, and been in years of sin and debauchery and, and filth and selfishness, and then Christ comes in and saves you and transforms you, and you've known that power from the first day. Others of you, of course, are more like Timothy. From a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And you've, you've been preserved from the real filth of the world, but at the same time, you've understood you're a sinner and you've come to Christ for salvation. But it's a sense of transformation. That's the point, that there should be a change. And Paul was transformed. This man, who calls himself the chief of sinners, he's able to call heaven and earth to witness, ear witnesses, and God also, how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now ask ourselves the question, how do we behave? How do we behave? Are we conscious of a watching world? We should be. But even more so, we should be conscious of a watching heaven. Year witnesses and God also. How sober. God is watching. These were the men that were doing the teaching. What an example. What a challenge it is to us. Then secondly, note the manner of their teaching. What was the manner of their teaching? We come to verse 11. And it gives something of the manner in which they taught. Now, we've looked at other aspects of this in terms of gentleness particularly. But verse 11 says, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Here's the manner of their teaching. As a father doth his children. Now, he's already compared himself to a nursing mother. Verse 7, We were gentle among you even as a nurse cherisheth her children. There's a nursing mother cherishing her children, providing everything that the child needs and running to its every cry and being very tender and gentle and very giving. And now he draws this imagery of the father's work with children. Now a father has a particular unique role in the discipleship process. And while there's a need for that gentleness, and Paul puts himself there, we were gentle as the pastor, as the one coming alongside to the new believers, we were very gentle. But at the same time, there was also this fatherly conduct as well. And the manner of their teaching had this, this paternal influence. And there's three words used. Exhorted, comforted, and charged. First then, we may see it had a paternal caution. There's a paternal caution here. Ye know how we exhorted. We exhorted. That is, it is a sense of calling to one side and admonishing. It's getting near to someone to address them, their problems, their issues, their defects. And it has the idea of imploring and beseeching. So you picture, again, the, the father, and he sees the wayward child. And he comes alongside the wayward child, and he exhorts some you need to stop doing this. You need to consider that this has consequences. 
You need to keep in mind what will be the outcome if you continue in this path. And they will speak. Yes, it may be gentle. There may be a gentle tone, but there's an exhortation. There's, there's a sense of, of bringing admonition to the heart, being very direct in terms of saying, here's the issue, and you need to understand it. I need to point it out to you as well as the warnings that need to go along with it. Paul says, this is what we did when we were with you. You know how we exhorted. When we were with you, we exhorted. That's an important aspect. I know that much of the teaching about parenting today will remove some of this. We're just kind of, we're just kind of really there to put a roof over their heads and put food on the table, and they will kind of just find their own way. And <laughs> well, just have a look at society today to see where that's ending up. No, no, there's a need to come and sit alongside children and point out where they're wrong. And say, son, daughter, this is wrong. Exhortation, imploring, bringing direct commands, beseeching them. Parents don't ignore that. And the same for spiritual leadership. I'll tell you, it's hard to exhort one-to-one. Now, preaching itself is a form of exhortation. I'm not, even what I'm doing, when I apply verse 10 to you, when I apply what I do through the preaching, I am bringing exhortation. I'm laying it before you. You're, yes, you're to consider it and reason in your mind. And I trust, sense, well, it's not just him up there saying this. This is what God says, and I then take it on board and put it into practice. Take the exhortation. Sin may be addressed. Certain practical aspects of Christian living, you take it on board and you live it out. But he also uses the word comforted. So it has not only paternal caution, but paternal comfort. And this has the idea of consolation. It is recognizing them when they're downcast, when they're upset. Can you imagine some of the new believers? Those who had trusted Christ in this city. And they had given themselves to the gospel and they're rejoicing and their sins forgiven. And then they go to their family. Think of some especially that were converted out of the synagogue. And they're listening to Paul and they're taking it on board and they're, they're rejoicing. The Messiah has come. And they're filled with joy. They're elated. They couldn't be more happy. And they go to tell their family and the expectation that they're going to receive it as well. But they don't. They're rejected. Maybe an older boy, <clears throat> 25, 30, 35 years of age, responds to Paul's teaching, his instruction in the synagogue, rejoices in it, goes to tell his elderly father, come, come and hear. And immediately it's rejected. And the boy, young man, goes up to Paul Tells him a struggle. I don't know what to do. My father says he'll disinherit me if I don't walk away. And Paul would come and he had a words of comfort. He'd remind them of the language of the Lord Jesus. No man has given up houses and lands and so on and so forth. It doesn't receive hundredfold even, 
both in this life and in the life to come. Comfort him. Other challenges that may be faced in the church. And then he uses the word charged. Charged. And <clears throat> this is the word really here is comes from the word martyr, has the idea of witness. Martyrios or a derivative of that noun. And so there's there's a sense of being a witness. And here Paul is teaching from the perspective of his own experience as a witness. See, fathers, do that. Paul would have said, for example, I, I saw, he would tell his testimony, I was on the Damascus Road trying to kill Christians and pull them into prison and make their life a misery. I was wreaking havoc on them. But then Jesus Christ came and met with me on that road and he would tell his testimony, he would speak from personal witness. And we'd apply that witness. And we do this. We sit with our children at times, we say to them, son, daughter, I know what you're thinking. I've been there. <laughs> I want to tell you something. You don't want to do this, or you do want to do that, or you want to consider the other. And you instruct them from personal experience. You witness. You're a witness to the better way to live. And Paul and the rest of them were witnesses of the right way. And so they would charge based on that witness. That's the term that's used, but they would give witness to them as a father doth his children. This was the manner of their teaching. Now the wisdom is in knowing which voice, if we can use that term, which voice to use in each particular context. You don't want to be going exhorting the person who needs comforted them. And you don't want to be trying to comfort the person who needs exhortation. When someone's living in sin, you don't want to come along and comfort them. You need to exhort them. You need to bring it strongly to their attention and admonish them in their rebellion. At the same time, if they're struggling as a weaker believer and they need comfort, you don't want to be exhorting them. So we need wisdom. And Paul and those with him had that wisdom. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Of course, as parents, we, we know where <laughs> the tendency, especially of fathers, what is their tendency? Provoke their children to wrath. Use the wrong voice. We need to be cautious of that. We need more wisdom. How much wisdom we need. Whatever form of leadership, whether it be in the home, in the church, or in society, and our communities itself. So the manner of their teaching given there in verse 11. That brings us then thirdly to consider the message that was taught. Seeing the men doing the teaching, they're godly. The manner of their teaching is godly as well. These God, this godly, fatherly-like aspect of understanding what's needed at certain times and bringing it to them. But that brings us really to the heart of this point, which the message that is taught in verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God. He hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. That ye would walk worthy of God. Worthy. 
sense of the original there is weight. That you would walk with the weight. It's indicating the responsibility, you see. Walking worthy of God. That's why the translator used the term worthy. It's responsibility. It's the weight. When you give someone responsibility, they feel the weight of that. When they get a promotion within their job and they, they go from some one place to another and that brings fresh responsibilities, they will wrestle over the weight of that at times. And they will feel that sense of responsibility and they will at times struggle with it. And this is, this is, this is what he's saying. I, I'm trying to bring the weight, the weight of responsibility to you. This is what we were doing as we lived in this godly fashion before you and exhorted and comforted and charged you as a father doth his children that you would understand the responsibility, the weight of the calling that you have. This calling is put in language that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2. I'll read it to you. Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 where he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless. Here's the kind of teaching you would bring to them that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So there is to be this blamelessness, harmlessness, because you're the sons of God. You're to reflect that sense of being a son of God, without rebuke in the midst of this crooked and perverse world in which we live. And so, this was the exhortation that came to the, the believers at Thessalonica, not just at Philippi, but there as well, that you would walk worthy of God. Walking worthy. Feeling the weight and responsibility. Now, he uses the term walk in verse 12. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So he's saying, look, you've, you've received this from us and we press it upon you again. You would abound more and more. You would grow in your walk. Verse 12 of chapter 4 as well. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. This idea of walking. Now we considered this on Wednesday evening for those that were here. This, this whole idea of walking. Psalm 138, verse 7 was the text we looked at on Wednesday evening. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. And this is the Christian experience. They walk in the midst of trouble. They exist in trouble, but they walk in the midst of trouble. That's the sense. And I argued the point that walking is most used in the Bible to indicate not our movement from A to B in terms of location, but in terms of our movement alongside God. Walking with God or not. I have since read, since Wednesday in preparation for today, the following, which I was not aware of when I was preaching on Wednesday night. One commentator says, the characteristic Jewish use of halak, and that's the Hebrew word for walk, the characteristic Jewish use of halak was in commendation of a walk in the law, statutes, ordinances, ways of God. For that reason, they refer to Jewish law as halakha. It refers to the collective body of Jewish religious laws derived from the written and oral Torah. This includes biblical commandments as well as Talmudic and rabbinic law. And it means, halakha, the way of walking. The way of walking. 
the way of walking, the way that you're meant to walk, is in accordance with what is written and what is given. Of course, it gets added to by Jewish tradition and so on, but the idea is there. That the walk, it, it essentially, their use of that term has drawn out the very point I was making without being aware of this Jewish historical reality, this present reality. That they use that term, halakha, in terms of the walk, because it is in accordance with what God would have us to do and how He would have us to live. When you read the Bible, you see that. It's so clear. The Lord God, the first reference, or one of the first references, He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And where's Adam after his sin? He's running. He's not walking with God. He's running away from God. He has stopped walking with God. He has moved himself away. He is no longer walking as he ought. Walking worthy of God. Rather, he has turned his back on God. And then you go through the book of Genesis and you have another reference to it, of course, in chapter uh, 5, verses 22 and 24. It refers to Enoch walking with God. In chapter 6, verse 9, Noah walked with God. And then the Lord instructs Abraham in this very thing. In Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. The sense of walking, the use of that term is, is being in harmony with God. Knowing what He has called you to do and be and living it out in fidelity. And so then you come to Moses and Moses lays it out very plainly in his law. He says, look, here's how to live. God has given his law, his statutes, his commands. Live them out, do them to the glory and praise of his name. When Jethro comes, we looked at this on Wednesday, when Jethro comes to Moses and he advises him in Exodus 18 verse 20, he says, Thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. So as Moses was given to this place of teaching the ordinances and making them understand God's laws, he was reflecting the way they must walk and the work they must do. And you carry on through the law and you see if you walk in my statutes and keep, in my, keep my commandments and do them, it's walking. And the Lord then turns this in His mercy. He says, I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. That's insofar as they, they do what He has called them to do. And Deuteronomy continues the same and you could go on and on and on. You come to the New Testament. We have it here. Elsewhere, Paul talks about it. Romans 6, verse 4. You should walk in newness of life. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, are you getting the point? In verse 12, when Paul says, the whole drive of our teaching, the whole purpose of us being there, really is summarizing and coming to verse 12 and saying that you would walk worthy of God. You're witnesses and God also of the godly way we live, verse 10. And as a father we came and exhorted and covered and charged you that ye would walk worthy of God. That your life would be in the pattern that God has laid down. We made that plain in our fatherly role and instructive manner to you. We taught you these things. This is what we're called to, beloved. And that sense of calling is what we can't miss in the text. That you would walk worthy of God who hath called you. He doesn't use the word call in chapter 1, but he does use the word election. Verse 4 of chapter 1, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Here he says, 
how God has called you onto his kingdom and glory. We should never forget what we receive in Christ. A sense of calling. The privileges that are ours, the, the benefits of the recipients of Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. We will never see the inside of hell, ever. There's not even the possibility of it. Those who give their hearts, their lives to Christ, they will never be in the blackness of darkness forever. They will never burn where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. They will never be there, not even for a nanosecond. They will never be there. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He takes away the punishment. The wrath is gone. And Paul says, look, you've been called into this. You've been brought into this. He's called you onto His kingdom and glory. You're no longer under the power of Satan. You're under the power of Christ. You're no longer under His law and His way as a puppet on His strings. You've been delivered and set free. The Son has redeemed you and pulled you under His kingdom and made you His subject that you would live to the praise of His glory. Peter uses this term of privilege of calling as well. And again, he couches it in terms of responsibility also. He says in 1 Peter 2.9, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He hath called you out of darkness. And you're to show forth the praises of Him who has done this. Your life is to be a constant life of praise. He uses it again in chapter 5, verse 10 of 1 Peter. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He has called us unto His eternal glory. Paul would have us remember this. He would have those at Thessalonica remember it. Why? That you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto His kingdom and glory. The main emphasis of the text is walking worthy of God. Walking with the weight. Walking with the responsibility. Walking with the sense of, of what He's called you to. But he, he, he says why that's so important. Because you've been called. You've been called unto His kingdom and glory. And Paul, you see, Paul, the, the, the moment the light dawned, the moment he understood that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and is the Lord, he puts himself under his sovereign rule, as I have quoted many times, and you will hear me quote on many occasions because it's a pattern for us, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What's the response? What is my responsibility? What are you calling me to And his whole life then was, 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 was pulling people under the benefits of the redemptive work of Christ, pulling them under the, 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 the benefits of, of knowing the atonement applied to them, and seeing them in turn go out as those called who walk worthy of God. Adam failed to walk worthy of God. Failed. 
And he plunged all of us into a condition of being incapable of walking worthy of God. But the last Adam comes. The Lord of glory descends and condescends into this world. And he lives as the first Adam ought. He obeys in every jot and tittle. He does everything the law of God requires. Whatever the Father willed, he did. He submitted himself entirely to it. And he was willing as a servant. And he purchased eternal redemption for us. And he did it all. And by his redemptive work, this is the thing, by his redemptive work, he not only applies the sense of no condemnation, but he brings the power to walk worthy again so that sin does not have dominion over you. So that you're transformed. Do not see the cross simply as a symbol of, a, of your ticket out of hell. And leave it there. There's my ticket out of hell. I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. See it as the power to live. It's the power to know a transformed heart. It's there in the cross we'd see the answer for how I can actually walk worthy of God. And so our gaze is ever on the cross. And we cannot sit at the foot of the cross and not consider not simply what we've received through Christ's person and work, but also then what we reciprocate in praise. Paul says, this is the driving, this is my driving point. And you know that we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Beloved, that is a big part of the ministry. You would make progress in this area, walking worthy. It's a tremendous privilege, you know. It's a badge of honor. It is. You belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has pulled you into his kingdom by his redeeming love. He's delivered you from nature's darkness. He's given you light and life and hope and salvation and redemption. He says, you're mine. You're mine. Show it to the world. Let the world know. Let it echo from you. Don't hide it. Put it under a bushel. But let your light so shine before men. What worthy of God. Think of the positions that there are in life. Think of the honor. Maybe some of you have had honor. The honor of being placed in a position where you've felt the weight of it. I feel such an honor to be in this place. And it has dictated how you lived. You've sensed the weight of it. You've sensed the responsibility of it. How much more should the sense that we belong to Christ not dictate how we live? That was the heart of his labor in the church. And that's the heart of any man's labor amongst the people of God. Enjoy the gospel 
and express it to the world in all of the happiness that there is in knowing your sins are forgiven. Like those that go through college, she said at the beginning it would be very sad if they left the same way they come in. That may happen, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's possible to graduate and actually leave the same way you enter. But one thing's certain. The gospel certainly does not let you do that. Jesus Christ does not let you do that. He brings you in. And He changes your heart. He changes your life. Your affections, your desires, new goals. Those who are graduating, I trust, that know the Lord. You're bringing the Lord into every decision that you have to make. You're considering Him. And you're bringing the matters before Him and saying, Lord, lead me. He leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. He does lead. And the goal is that by the time the Lord sees fit to take us right into His presence, it can be said of us that you walked worthy of God. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed before the Lord, you're here this morning and you're in need of spiritual counsel, prayer. You may be anxious about where you are before God. Don't in any way be shy about coming to speak to us. I'll be glad to sit with you and pray with you, open the Word of God with you, counsel you in whatever way I can. Lord, we are We are privileged. Thou hast worked wondrously. And we pray that Thou wilt give us the grace we need There are many, many powers at work. They're summarized in what we've already considered in prayer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those forces are after our affections and our allegiance. I pray today that we will see Christ every single day. We will remember Him, consider Him. Thou wilt make us to be men and women that can say what Paul and the party with him were able to say. Ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. 
God, we fear we fall very short. But it's not over yet. Continue to give grace. Continue to give more and more of the Spirit. We confess our utter powerlessness to do this of ourselves. And we lean heavily upon our Lord Jesus, who told us that without Him we can do nothing, and sent us forth, saying, All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore. Give something of thy power to us daily. Make it to ever increase and abound in our lives. We pray for examples in this congregation, good and godly examples. We ask that thou wilt bless those examples, that we might bear fruit in helping others, being an example to the brethren, and being a pattern of good works. May our young people learn well. May they mature quickly. May they know what it is to walk soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And as some make decisions in these days, we pray that Thou wilt humble them and keep them humble, that they may pursue Thy mind and Thy will for them. So hear our prayer this day. Be with us through our time of fellowship together here, even in the moments following the close of our service. And be with us through the afternoon. And be with us when we return in the evening. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.